Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Revelation 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another red horse went and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him, and authority was given to him, or to them, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand. Chapter 6 begins the breaking of the seals, and six of the seals are broken here in this chapter, and this continues into chapter 8 when the seventh seal is broken. These seals are the seals that are on the book mentioned in chapter 5. In chapter 5, there were seven seals in the right hand of God the Father, and only the Son, the Son of God, was able to open and to take that book and to open and break its seals. Only he was found worthy to do so. Now, these, this book with the seven seals, as is in, uh, indicative of the upcoming chapters, it has to be a book of judgment or a book of vindication, a book of punishment, a book of the exoneration of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. It has to be a book of that sort. And often in the Bible, a book or books are are mentioned in order to declare God's will and His determination, His decree 
for the things of the earth, what happens in time, space, and matter. And this is what happens in chapter 6. Now, there are different interpretations in this section of the book of Revelation. From chapter 6 and following, especially chapter 6 to 18, there are varied interpretations. And I refer you to the first couple of lectures on this subject of the book of Revelation for the views and how they take this middle section. So, just to summarize briefly, one view known as dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism says that these chapters, chapters 6 to 18, are talking about a seven-year period of tribulation which is yet future. Seven-year period of tribulation which is yet future. Therefore, that view is also called the, the futurist view. Futurist in terms of these events here. Still, even future to us, not yet occurred. Another view is known as post-millennialism. Post-millennialism may also be known as a positive, figurative millennium, meaning between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the world is getting better and better, it's becoming more and more Christianized, and then when it is fully or nearly Christianized, Christ returns, and then eternity begins. That is known as post-millennialism. Another view, uh, so that, the, excuse me, so with the post-millennial view, they will take chapter 6 to 18 to be something that occurred already in the first century, and at the most in the subsequent centuries, second, third, fourth century, but usually not farther than that. The first century is when these events already occurred, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the persecution under Nero, and even subsequent uh, emperors like Domitian, uh, who were persecutors of the Christian church. This is the way that they take it. Then there is the amillennial view. Amillennialism will take these middle chapters to be something that is unfolding throughout history, unfolding throughout history, and they are also taking the book of Revelation in what's called the historicist view. Historicist meaning these events are mainly depicting, if not exclusively depicting, events throughout church history between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, beginning at the time of the apostles and then ending when Christ returns by Revelation chapter 19. Then there is uh, a fourth view, the historic premillennial view, which may also, some of them may take it like the amillennialists, that is, that these middle chapters are depicting things that happen throughout history. But also, there are some who take these middle chapters of the book of Revelation to be describing in figurative terms, primarily, events that are common events that happen throughout history, they will intensify and they will become worse when Christ returns and Christ will deliver us from all of these persecutions and afflictions that happen. And then the millennium begins and then there's eternity. That would be called the historical, historicist, uh, um, historic, historical or classical premillennial view. That, that is, these events may be occurring throughout history or they may simply be describing in symbolic terms the way that judgment happens on the earth. Some repent, others don't repent. The church is persecuted and this is the way it will be and intensify until Christ comes back. Okay, that's a summary of how to take those views. And 
the interpretation that I will take will be that last one, the historic premillennial view, and that these are describing events that happen throughout history in not saying that a certain passage or paragraph fits with A.D. 250, and then another one fits with A.D. 500, and then another one so forth throughout the Middle Ages. I, I don't take it to be that way. I take it to be describing events that happen regularly throughout history that are common and that these are things we should look for. That is, the church needs to withstand the onslaught and persevere until the end, until Christ delivers us from persecutions. Persecutions that will intensify until he returns. Okay? So, chapter 6, verse one, verses 1 and 2, the first seal is broken. The first seal. There are two main ways to look at this first seal. The first way to take the first seal is that this is a positive description of Christ or the ministers of Christ preaching the gospel and conquering nations by preaching the gospel. That's the positive interpretation. The negative interpretation of the first seal is that this is actually describing a false Christ or the Antichrist or at least representative of Antichrist, the many who go out and do evil in the name of Christ, they appear to be good, but actually they are conquering people by their falsehood. And I take it in that last sense, in the negative sense. I take it that way because it is Christ who is breaking these seals, and the context of these chapters is the judgment of God coming on the earth. The judgment of God on the earth. That's the way the rest of the chapter reads. And so it would seem sensible in context to take it as negative as a description of the Antichrist or false Christ who goes out and influences people to conquer them, though he does it deceptively. Let's see that. Verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. Remember, it's only Christ, according to chapter 5, who's worthy to break these seals, and this shows His sovereignty. Christ's sovereignty over all these events. I will use this phrase frequently. That is, we will see in these chapters, if we have not already seen in the book of Revelation, we will see the Jesus nobody wants. This is the Jesus people hate. This is the Jesus nobody preaches. The Jesus who is sovereign and who is wrathful and who punishes wicked people and gives them their just deserts. That's what he does. And this is what we will see throughout this chapter and throughout the book of Revelation. And it's not just in Revelation. It's throughout the New Testament also. And since the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, 1 Peter 1, 10-12, even the prophets were preaching the way Christ wanted them to preach. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. So what does Christ do here? It says here, He broke the seven seals, one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, the four living creatures of chapter 4, verse 7, one of them said with a voice of thunder, with a thunderous voice, a loud voice, getting his attention. Because he's seeing something new now. He saw a revelation of the Father and the Son in the preceding visions. Now he sees revelations of judgment. And so, the voice of thunder. Whenever there is thunder in the Bible, the best example is Exodus 19 and 20. Whenever there is a, th a thunder or thunderous voice, 
It is God calling, our, uh, calling us to attention because He is revealing Himself in holiness, righteousness, and judgment. Holiness, righteousness, and judgment. John knows this. So he says in verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. He has a white horse. When one sees a white horse, one is thinking, oh, this must be a good man. This must be a good messenger, a white horse, one who is victorious. And in a sense, he will be victorious, but it's deception. Even in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15, Paul said that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and it is no wonder if his messengers do the same. No wonder. A white horse, he's riding on it, and here he is out to make war. He has a bow, and he's going out to conquer and to conquer. He went out conquering and to conquer. So he is going out, he is fighting a battle, he's fighting against God, and specifically against Christ, because he wants to have victory over the whole earth. And especially he wants to attack the Christian church. He wants to do so. But notice, it is a crown given to him. We'll see this expression, granted or given, is explained here in several times in chapter 6 and throughout the book. When a crown was given to him, it means somebody is giving a crown to him. Well, who is the one giving a crown to him? Who's the one releasing him and putting him on a white horse and giving him the ability to conquer? It has to be God himself or Christ himself. Christ himself is the one breaking the seal here. It has to be God doing so. Now, we should not be surprised that the Bible shows that God the Father and Christ, His Son, have power over evil angels, demons, evil spirits, and even Satan. Remember Job 1 and 2? Satan wanted to challenge God and Job's righteousness, and God grants to Job power over Job's possessions and family, just not his body. And then in chapter 2, Satan approaches God again, and then God gives Satan the ability to harm Job's body, but not his life. There we have the chief of all the evil spirits, and God is granting Satan permission to wreak destruction on Job. This, this happens throughout the Old Testament. Another example is 1 Kings 22. Micaiah, the prophet, he sees a vision of heaven. The heavenly hosts are there. And the spirits come before the Lord, the host of heaven come before the Lord, and the Lord asks, which one of you will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, in the mouth of all of Ahab's false prophets? And then a spirit comes forth and says, I will come forth, I will do so. And God says, go and prevail. God grants permission to an evil spirit to be a deceiver in the mouth of Ahab's false prophets, and then they influence Ahab to do evil, and the army of Israel to do evil and wrong and to die in battle and for misery to come upon the northern kingdom because of all that. There are many examples like this. So it should not surprise us that here in this book and in this chapter, Christ gives evil spirits power. He has them on a leash. Satan is on a leash, on the leash of Christ. 
And he is only given permission to do as much as Christ permits him to do. This is what happens here. To conquer and to go out throughout the earth to deceive people and to win many people to his side. Verse 3, we have the next, the second seal. This one depicts war. Not a spiritual war so much as a physical war so that there is death and misery and destruction all around. Verse 3, And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now this other angel on a red horse, red evidently here because of war and bloodshed, it's a red horse depicting this mass, uh, massive bloodshed, and that men are slaying one another. They have This angel has a great sword giving power to evil men to kill one another unjustly and to try to conquer and devour one another, one another's possessions, taking pride in their warfare. But again, we saw in verse 4, it says, It was granted to take peace. God is the one who grants that these things happen. The people of the world who do evil don't do evil because they are independent of God, that they are an equal force against God. But God is the one who grants them the ability to do that. Verse 5, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the, living, the, the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This third seal it unleashes famine. It unleashes famine throughout the earth. It says in verse 5 that the horse is black, black and famine. Usually when one is mourning because of one's circumstances, one wears sackcloth, which is also usually black, coming from the uh, black goats, the hair of black goats. So the black horse depicting famine. And that's evident because there is a pair of scales. In Leviticus 26.26 and Ezekiel 4.16, there are examples of how when one has to be very careful about weighing what one has on the, on the scales, that is God's way of indicating that there's famine coming because of judgment. Famine and judgment. And for this reason, it says uh, in verse 6, the voice that comes from the center of the four living creatures, this would be the voice of God, the voice of God, as we see from chapter 4, verse, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The voice of God, because the living creatures are all there around the throne of God, God says that this is the way it will be. Again, God's sovereignty, a quart of wheat for a denarius. From Matthew 20, verse 2, 20, verse 2, we see in Jesus' parable that a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. Equivalent to a day's wage. So, one can purchase a quart of wheat for a denarius for a day's wage. So, let's say in our times, if we take a very very uh, restricted or low uh, wage and say the common worker, the one who works, let's say, in restaurants and as, as, in, as janitor and things like that, 
what, what would we say? We might say maybe average $10, maybe more than that, but let's just say 10 for a figure. So 10 times 80 makes $80 a day. Can you imagine spending $80 to buy a quart of wheat? And a quart of wheat would be sufficient to feed one man for a day or so. Can you imagine that, the, the cost? This is what happens in a time of famine. So that many people are harmed because of the judgment of God. God pronounces judgment on them and He unleashes the evil spirits to cause famine throughout the earth. And then the three quarts of barley. Barley is less valuable than wheat. Barley is more uh, eaten by animals, domestic animals, rather than by men, but men do also eat that. Wheat is more uh, precious and more expensive than barley. So here even three quarts of barley for a denarius. They also have to spend a day's wage for that which is of less value. However, showing the sovereignty of God again, God says, do not harm the oil and the wine. Those people who are wealthy enough to buy the oil and the wine, God gives a, a measure of grace and, and relief in that the oil and the wine, the prices for them remain the same. He's controlling what happens what people are able to eat and what they're not able to eat. Verses 7 and 8, 7 and 8, the fourth seal. And he broke, and when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Here, this fourth horse is an ashen horse. This color of the ashen horse is likely the color of a corpse, of somebody who has just died, and the color of that corpse is the color that he sees that the horse has. And this is fitting because the horse and he who sat on it had the name. The rider of the horse is called Death, and Hades follows with him. What is he going out to do? He's going out to bring about death on the earth to a fourth of the, of the earth. To a fourth of, uh, of the earth. And what will he do? What will his means be to produce death and also to send pay people into Hades, into the afterlife? What will he do? It will be with the sword, with famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. All of these will be attacking mankind so that mankind is harmed and put to death and in misery because of this. Again, we see, though, in verse 8, this is not happening out of control. It says, authority was given to them. Authority was given to them. This is God saying what can happen within limitations, a fourth of the earth. We'll see later in the book of Revelation that Eventually, a third of the earth will be harmed like this. And then finally, the whole earth will be harmed like this. That the, the, the punishment intensifies. The turmoil and the tribulation that intensifies throughout the book so that ultimately Christ is the only one to deliver the earth from its woes. Now, the fifth seal. The fifth seal, verses 9 to 11. This fifth seal, though it is 
depicting the martyrs and the prayer of the martyrs and the answer to the prayer of the martyrs, we may call this fifth seal a seal of vengeance. A seal of vengeance because this is what the martyrs pray. Verse 9, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Notice there, in verse 9, they are underneath the altar. Underneath the altar. Now, it doesn't say which altar this was or which altar is being symbolized here. Whether it is the sacrificial altar, the bronze altar of the temple, or whether it is the altar of incense. And the altar of sacrifice would, of course, have blood, and the blood would be poured out and go down to the base of the altar. So it may be that these people, these Christians, have poured out as a sacrifice their own blood. And this is represented by them being underneath the altar, because the blood of the sacrifices would go to the base of the altar. Or this could be or, uh, we may also say, and it could be, it could be a either or or both and, that this altar is the altar of incense. Because the altar of incense was representative of prayer. We, see, we saw this earlier in Revelation, and we'll see it later in eight, chapter 8, in verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 3, it says that, uh, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add to it to the prayer, the, the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. There. And it uh, depicts their prayers. So here in chapter 6, verse 9, what are they doing in verse 10? They're praying. They're praying in verse 10. We may there, therefore take it to be an altar that represents both, the sacrificial altar and the altar of incense, which depicts or represents their prayers. And what happens? Their souls are there. Not their bodies, but their souls. They're invisible spirits. A spirit does not have flesh and bone, Jesus said, Luke 24, 36-39. And God is spirit, and He does not have flesh and bones. God is spirit, John 4, 24. So the souls of those who had been slain are there. They're there because the resurrection has not taken place, and they are there, and we'll see from the answer to their prayer, that others also have to be slain as they were slain. Now, in verse 9, when it says they who had been slain, we have to take their slaying not to be simply because of accidents or famine or something of that nature, but it has to be because they were martyrs, because it says, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. This happens when they refuse to budge on the word of God and when they refuse to testify of the grace of God in Christ. When they say, Christ is my Lord and Savior, and they are told they should recant and reject Christ, and they say, no, we will not, then they will be executed. This is what naturally, normally happens, and this happens to martyrs. And also notice in verse 11, it says that there were more of the saints to be killed even as they had been 
more of them to be killed as they had been. And verse 10, they want vengeance. They want vengeance. So vengeance would not come because a natural calamity struck them. Vengeance would come because somebody who should not have put an innocent Christian to death put an innocent Christian to death. An authority or, or someone else had put them to death. Verse 10. So what is their prayer? And they cried out with a loud voice. Notice there, a loud voice. They cry out for justice. They want God to hear. They say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? They've been waiting a long time. They're even in heaven and they're still waiting and they want God to execute justice. They had been mistreated. They want God to execute justice. This is not a sinful prayer for saints do not sin in heaven. Revelation 21.4 says there's no longer a curse. There's no longer any death. There's no longer pain and sorrow. Nothing like that. And Revelation 22 as well speaks like this. So no, there is no sin in heaven. That, that's what our hope is. Therefore, when they pray like this, they're not praying a sinful prayer when they ask how long. It's not as though they are impatient. They are eager for God's righteousness to be demonstrated. That's why they're saying how long. They are eager for God's righteousness to be demonstrated. O Lord. Lord is in the scriptures a term for God's sovereign rulership over the whole world. He is the mighty ruler over the whole world. Holy and true. They know what God is like. He is holy and true. He's holy, therefore righteousness and justice emanate from Him in a true way. And He's also true in that He keeps His promises. He keeps His word. Whatever He says will come about. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians 1. Yes. They all will be fulfilled in Him. They are true. So knowing that God is truthful, He's trustworthy, He's loyal, He will keep His promises, they call on God. God, you are holy and you are true. Therefore, act in accordance with who you are. If we ask anything, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if we ask anything and it is in accordance with His will, He hears us. Praise well, if, if, if God had promised that He will bring justice on the earth, they pray for justice in the right way. They call on God to be holy and true to what His Word says. And therefore, it's a prayer that will be answered. In fact, it is this prayer that is answered in the upcoming chapters. And it will be answered throughout all eternity. Throughout all eternity. So they say, How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Their blood had been shed. When innocent blood is shed, it's time for God to execute retribution. They deserve to be punished for shedding innocent blood. And in this case, it's not only the innocent blood of somebody who did not commit a crime under the law, under human laws, which would be bad in and of itself, but it is the innocent blood of Christians. Christians who are standing for the true and living God, who are standing for the gospel, are being put to death because they won't worship idols. They're being put to death because they live righteously. They won't tell a lie. They're living righteously because they won't commit sexual immorality. They won't commit murder. They won't steal. 
And then they're being imprisoned and put to death because of these things. So, when they say, avenge our blood, it's innocent blood that was shed. Because they lived for God and they lived according to the word of God. So, those who dwell on the earth. We spoke earlier from chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Those who dwell upon the earth throughout the book of Revelation describes the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world. They want God to punish the unbelieving world. They want Him to judge and avenge. The scripture does say, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So they pray for God to answer. Answer that promise. Answer that from that we find that in Romans twelve, nineteen to twenty one, and also from Deuteronomy thirty two, thirty two, thirty five, and forty three. God is a God of vengeance. In due time he executes judgment. This is a righteous prayer. And God answers it as though it's a righteous prayer. Look at verse eleven. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, You sinned in heaven, therefore I cast you out of heaven. He didn't say anything like that. Verse eleven. And there was given to each of them a white robe. There was given, meaning God gave them a white robe. A white robe because they have been redeemed. Their robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 14. They are righteous. And this white robe indicates that. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. You know, in the scriptures, a little while longer means until God in His time does what He wants to do. When God in His time does what He wants. And what will this encompass? Verse 11 says, Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. God has a specified number of martyrs that will be executed throughout time, from the, and especially from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, there are martyrs yet to be killed. This happens even today. It's happening all around the world. And occasionally it happens here in our country. It happens this way, that those who take a stand for the truth are killed, and there are more to be killed. It says, fellow servants... So they did the right thing. They served God. And they are brothers. Their brethren. More brothers in Christ must be put to death unjustly. Because God has ordained for a certain number of them to be executed in this way. This is what will happen until Christ returns. Then, we continue... And it says in verses 12 and six, 12 to 16, the sixth seal. The sixth seal describes the terror of the unbelieving world. And we'll notice they have terror without repentance. Terror without repentance. Verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the, scar, star, excuse me, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. 
and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. All of these natural phenomena occur. Now, one may take this literally, and I do believe, according to Second Peter 3, that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by intense heat, as Peter says. They will be destroyed by intense heat. Second Peter chapter 3 <coughs> describes that very clearly, in very literal, plain terms. That will occur. The question, though, is whether this paragraph is describing that event, or is it describing so many cataclysmic and unusual events that occur, so that people are terrified, and they are terrified to hide themselves. They are terrified enough that they go and hide themselves. I think this is what is happening. They are terrified enough of all of the things, the natural calamities that occur, that they go and hide themselves, but they refuse to repent. Notice verse 15. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They hide themselves. But just like wicked people do, according to Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24, can one hide himself from the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, God says? Can a man hide himself so that I do not see? God's answer in Jeremiah 23 is no way. No one can hide himself from me. Just like Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 verse 8. They were guilty and they knew that punishment was imminent, so they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. This is what people do when they know they're guilty, but not repentant. They hide themselves. Guilty, but unrepentant. They hide themselves. How do we know that they are unrepentant. Verse 16, it says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to, to stand? They say, they want to be killed, they would rather die knowing the terror of God and knowing the wrath of God is upon them without repentance. They don't repent here, they just know that God the Father and God the Son are angry and the great day of their wrath has come. The great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? They know no one can withstand the mighty power of God. Now, this is not the only time in the book of Revelation that people respond like this. Look at chapter 9. Revelation 9, Revelation 9 Punishment is also coming upon people in this section. And then in verse 20 it says, Revelation 9.20, And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. They did not repent, even though judgment came. Revelation six, uh, 16, Revelation 16, more judgment and wrath from God comes upon them. And notice verse 9, 16, 9. 
and men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Verse 11, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And verse 21, 16-21, And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from, from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Instead of repenting, and instead of giving God glory, they blaspheme God, they insult God, they slander God, they accuse God of doing wrong, instead of acknowledge, acknowledging their own wrong. We should also observe from Revelation 16, or 616, 6.16, that it's not only that these people are fleeing the presence of Him who sits on the throne, the presence of God the Father. Observe in verse 16 that the Lamb has wrath. The Lamb has wrath. This is the Jesus people hate. This is the Jesus nobody wants. This is the Jesus nobody wants to study and to acknowledge as being right and true, a part of His character. Jesus was this way on the earth. Jesus was this way on the earth. You know that in John chapter 2, He went into the temple. He went into the temple at Passover, 2.14. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, He said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. From Psalm 69.9, Jesus says about God, his father, Zeal, meaning righteous zeal and anger, for your house will consume me. And this is what he did. He made a scourge of cords. He made a weapon that could harm people. Jesus did. And He drove out all, the, the, all of them and He overturned their tables. He made a mess of things and told them to scram God's house. This happened also in Matthew 21, a second time in Matthew 21. In Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus is presented with a challenge, a cha challenge on the Sabbath that there was a man with a withered hand. And Jesus knows he's being set up. He's being, he knows he's being set up. Mark 3, verse 5. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus was angry and grieved at the hardness of heart by his adversaries. He was angered and grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, Jesus did this while he was on the earth, and Jesus does this while he's in heaven. 
and this is the kind of affliction and t torment he's going to bring upon people on the earth and on the day of judgment. He is going to be the one who executes the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Revelation 19, upon his return, from his mouth, 1915, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he will smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2.12, kiss the son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. Kiss him, do homage to him, worship him, lest he become angry. Christ can become angry. And this is what happens here. His anger is what inflicts punishment on people. Well, we've seen here these various afflictions that God, in His sovereignty, by means of Christ, and specifically through evil angels and means and evil people, brings punishment upon people. God is a God of righteousness and justice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.